Hi, good morning. Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Thank you. Thank you, Lorraine. Uh, Last week, I introduced you to or mentioned um, a friend of mine that I've known for a number of years uh, who... I have the right Bible. Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine who has, I think, pretty much everything that in our society a person would like to have, right? Sort of li- living the dream life in many ways. And we'll call him John, I think, is the name that I gave him. I can't remember if that's the name I gave him last week, but we'll call him John today. Uh, and John has, he has everything that you know, pretty much people would want. He has a successful career, he's doing exactly what he wanted to do, has a successful career, is making a significant amount of money, uh, he's, he's able to live in a part of the country that he wants to live in, has a house full of kids, uh, healthy kids, and, and has, you know, has, all the, kind of has a lot of vacation, can actually use the vacation to spend the money and be with the family and all this kind of stuff. And, and so this is a person who has a lot of what we would, would say we're, you know, most people are looking for, and yet John has told me on a number of different occasions that, that he often feels this incredible emptiness, uh, this, this sense of um, anxiety and, and uh, hopelessness a little bit, and, and just, just a general kind of emptiness that, that can kind of pervade his life. And then I introduced you to Barbara. We'll call her Barbara. And Barbara is a, a single woman who, who has gone from job to job over the years, and has told me on a number of different occasions where you know, sometimes I just don't even want to get up in the morning. I just, I, I don't, I, I just, I'm so depressed, I'm so low that I would really, I, I don't even want to put my feet on the ground. I want to keep them in my bed. And so I, I said last week that, you know, you're, you're probably all thinking, well, you know, you're, you're a pastor, right? So that's when you tell them about Jesus, Right, that's when you tell them about Jesus. Right, telling telling a pastor that you're feeling empty inside is like telling a personal injury lawyer that you slipped on the ice outside of a building. Right, I mean, it's like you're just inviting, opening up the door for here. Here I come. Let me tell you, let me tell you about Jesus. But what we saw last week is that the problem is that John and Barbara already know Jesus. They're already Christians. They, they they've already come to faith. In God, they've already developed a relationship 
with Jesus. So the question is, how? Why? Why would, why would this be the case if you would come to know God, you would come to know his love for you, why, why would there be this, this, this time where you're, you're, you're in the desert, right? Why, when you've, you've been delivered, you've come to experience deliverance, why would you then end up in the desert? That doesn't make any sense. Or continuing this three-week series, it will be a three-week series, called Faith in the Desert. And we're looking at this passage of Jesus in the desert. And what we saw last week is that against, I think, popular notions, the desert follows deliverance. The desert often follows deliverance. That, that Jesus, you know, he gets baptized. You think, well, he probably gets baptized when he comes out of the desert, right? You know, because, you know, baptism, at least generally speaking, is about deliverance. And so, you know, and, and, and so, you know, he was in the desert, right? And, and then he came out and was baptized. It's like, well, no, actually, if you look at it, he gets baptized and then he goes into the desert. Deliverance before the desert. Well, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Well, except that it does make sense because Jesus' story is paralleling the story of the people of Israel. And of course, if you remember, the Israelites, they get delivered from slavery in Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, that's the waters of the Red Sea, where we get the you know, sort of symbolism of baptism, deliverance, all of that. They go through the Red Sea, and then what, do they go straight to the Promised Land? No, they go to the desert. They go into the desert. So, so desert follows deliverance. And so this is... This is something that as Christians we, we need to be aware of. And the Bible talks a lot about this, that present Christian experience is often going to feel like the desert. I shared 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the trials you are facing as though something strange were happening to you. Say, don't be surprised. This life is very much a life that's in the desert. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to overemphasize the desert theme because actually what we find in the Scriptures in the New Testament is, is there's a tension. Uh, there, there's a tension where, where um, well, on one hand, you get this stream that's talking about, don't be surprised if you're suffering. Remember, this is not our home. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through. You kind of get that sort of theme that emerges in the New Testament. But then you also get, Jesus also says things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is available now. And so there's this tension, and, and theologians often call it the, the already not yet nature of, of, the, of the kingdom of God, the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God, that, that in one sense, it's, it's already here, but in another sense, it's not. It's not. And, and I think you can actually, if, if you look at the various streams of Christianity uh, in our world today and historically, one of the ways in which you can kind of account for the different streams, and doesn't account for it perfectly, but one of the ways you can see it is that different streams kind of fall on the continuum, different place along the continuum of the already not yet. You see, some streams overemphasize the present availability of the kingdom of God. Others underemphasize the present availability of the kingdom of God. So, so for example, and again this, again, this doesn't sum up all of the theological differences, but I think it's helpful. For example, those who, emphasize, who, who perhaps overemphasize the availability of the kingdom of God, you might find in, in ultra-charismatic and healing streams where, 
where if your grandmother dies and you pray for her to be raised from the dead and she doesn't come back to life, you just didn't have enough faith because the kingdom of God is here. Or, or um, even some streams of the prosperity gospel. You know, you know the, the blessings of God are here. You should expect the kingdom is here and all of the material kinds of blessings that come from that, that, that should be here that should be here as well, you know, and so, and then even the holiness perfection streams, right, where, you know, really, you, you can become perfect now. If you're still sinning, if you're still sinning in this life, well, then the Spirit really isn't working in your life very well, because the kingdom of God is here. So, so overemphasizing, what, what theologians would call an overrealized eschatology, that, that the kingdom of God is here already. And they don't think about the not yet. But then on the other hand, you can have the other extreme. That, that everything's all not yet. It's all not yet. So, you know, don't even bother praying for somebody when they're sick. Why would you bother praying for them? They're not, God's not going to heal. That's, that's for the age. That's later. That's when they go to heaven. They'll get healed. Don't even bother. Don't really even believe that when you pray for them that they're going to get better. Right? Or, or, or you're even, like, afraid to, to be blessed financially. Like, if I have money, that's a bad thing. Right? No, 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 this is, this is the desert life. You're supposed to be in the desert. You can't have any money. Right? Sort, of, sort of underemphasizing it. Or, 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 you know, or how about this one? Um, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Absolutely no expectation that you're actually going to grow or change. No, that's, that's for the age to come. I'm just forgiven now. You shouldn't expect me to actually grow in holiness. So that's an underrealized eschatology. And so... It's important, what I, of course, I think what's important is we've got to emphasize both. We've got to leave these in tension. And so there are going to be times when I'm going to really talk about the availability of the kingdom of God. The presence is here. And then there's going to be times we're going to talk about the desert. And that's what we're talking about now is the desert. We see this theme that desert follows deliverance. Now, of course, the question that emerges from this, I think a natural question, desert follows deliverance. Don't be surprised that you're suffering trials, all of this kind of stuff. You're like, well, why? Why would God deliver us and then leave us? Why would he do that? Why, why, why would he deliver us and then just leave us? And here's what emerges from this passage. Here's what we need to see. When you are in the desert, it isn't God that has left. When you are in the desert, it isn't God that has left you. Notice this here, um, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. The Spirit's the one thing that he's got. It doesn't say that that the Spirit pushed Jesus into the desert. You know, like when you're... Your friends, your kids, when you were younger, would push you into the pool and then stand outside and laugh at you? All right, the Spirit doesn't, like, push Jesus into the desert and then, ha-ha, let's see, let's see how he does. No, the Spirit is with him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is with him. When you are in the desert, it isn't God that has left you. The very heart of the God of the Bible is that he is a God who does not leave us. He is a God who comes after us. That's the, whole, that's the whole story. That's the big picture of the story of the Bible, that in Genesis 
Two, we turn away from God. We're like, I don't need God. I can do it on my own. I want to do my own thing. And, and then you see in Genesis 3 through 11, sort of, I like to say, the chronicling decadence of humanity, the spiraling decadence of humanity, I like to call it. And, and you just kind of get a picture of what the world would look, you know, looks like when God's not, not around. And then in Genesis 12, God unleashes this plan to come and pursue those who have turned away from him. Calls to Abraham, says, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In other words, I'll protect you. And the reason why I'm going to protect you is so that all nations may be blessed through you. He's, un, he's unfolding this plan to come and, and to make things right, to bring renewal. And, and then the story, story goes on, and it comes to its climax in Jesus. In Jesus, God comes for us. The, the whole story of the Bible, if there's nothing else that you get, is that we worship a God that is relentlessly pursuing us. God doesn't leave you. If you're in the desert, it isn't God that has left you. So why is it that it seems like God has left you? Why, when you're in the desert, why does it seem like God has left me? And here's why. Because we mistake the blessings of God for the presence of God. We mistake the blessings of God for the presence of God. We fail to see the difference. We think they're the same. You see, the blessings of God can be used by God to draw you into his presence. That's what they're there for. The blessings of God can be used by God to draw you into his presence. So let's just talk about God's blessings for a minute. I, I, I love music. Music is a gift from God. It's a blessing that God has given, for somebody like me, music draws me into the presence of God. I remember uh, years ago uh, when I was, I was an associate pastor at a church and I didn't have any kids, <clears throat> so I had some time on my hands, and I, uh, I, I actually did this blog. And one of the blog entries, I was looking back at this a number of years ago, the blog entry was called Worship with Wooten. And it was a blog entry where I was talking about how I was going to hear the bassist Victor Wooten is one of the greatest bass players in the world. My, my wife used to work at a concert venue, and she could get me into all of these, these concerts, again, when I didn't have kids. And uh, she gave me in all these free concerts, and I was so excited. I was going to hear Victor Wooten play bass, and I, and I had this blog called Worship with Wooten, and I was going anticipating that through the music that he was playing, I was going to be drawn into the presence of God. And, and I was. I went, and, and he's amazing, and I'm like, God is good. I was drawn into the presence of God because... The blessings of God can draw you into the presence of God. Uh, my wife is an amazing cook. And so it's not abnormal on a random Tuesday or Wednesday night for me to come home after a rather average mundane day and she will have fixed something that I would pay big money for. And I don't know about you, but for me, food can draw me into the presence of God. Can I get an amen to that one? we got to get more amens in this church. Come on, people. All right. Right? Food can draw you into the presence. You have a great meal, and you're like, wow, God is good. Right? Food is a blessing that can draw you into the presence of God. Uh, family is a blessing that can draw you into the presence of God. Uh, just last week on a Monday, Laura and I take Monday off, and, and we, had, uh, had the, we were sitting outside. It was a beautiful Monday. And the, the sprinkler was on, and 
Grace and Caleb were running through the sprinkler just laughing. And it was just one of those kind of picturesque moments where just through that, I'm like, God, you are God. You are right here. You are right here with us. That through the blessing of family, I was drawn into the presence of God. You can be drawn into the presence of God through his blessings, maybe even in your job, maybe even in your career. You know, you, you, you're having success in your career and you're flourishing. You find your abilities being used in ways. And, and the reality is that as that moves forward, you find yourself, God is good. It's like you, you, it's just being good at what you're doing in your job draws you into the presence of God. The blessings of God can draw you into the presence of God. The problem is when we mistake the blessings of God for the presence of God. When we mistake the blessings of God for the presence of God, and and now the blessings of God no longer are vessels which can dispense the presence of God, which God can use to dispense His his presence, now the blessings become God's to us. So now, now you're, not, you're not pursuing the presence of God through blessings, you're pursuing the blessings themselves. You're, you're, you're no longer interested in the coffee in the cup, you just want the mug. You're not interested in the presence of God, you just, you just want the, the, the blessings of God. You, you mistake one for the other, and this is what the Bible calls idolatry. That's idolatry when created things, the, the, the things, ultimately everything was created by God, and so everything is a blessing of God. And when, when that thing becomes as important to you or more important to you than God himself. Now, here's the thing. We've got to be careful about this because if you're a Christian, you never really think that you worship something other than God. Because your doctrine is good. I mean, you guys, I know you guys. You sign off on the doctrinal statement. Yeah, no. I mean, you know, no. I, we sing, I believe in God the Father. It's like, I believe in my job. I believe. You don't say that. I mean, you're not like you, mentally, doctrinally, you're always going to say, yeah, no, I worship God. But what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? What is your, what is your heart really worship? See, idolatry comes when, when really the blessings become more important to you than God. Turn with me to Job. Job. It's on page 496 of your pew Bibles. If you want to turn there, this is Job chapter 1. And Job is, the story of Job is interesting in how it parallels, in many respects, Jesus' desert wanderings, right? So there's, there's some similarities here, which I think are interesting. Now, let's talk about Job here. I'll just kind of sum up the first part of Job, chapter 1. Job, Job is the guy who has everything. He has everything that an ancient Near Eastern man could ever want. You know, he's got uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. I don't know about you, man, but boy, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, 3,000, I mean, nothing, I'm telling you, nothing stirs up envy in me like another man's camel. No, but to an, a near, an ancient Near Eastern man, like, camels would be like Camaros, Right? And he's got 3,000 Camaros, right? This, this guy has got everything 
that you would want. He is abundantly blessed. And in addition to that, God says he's in right relationship with you. He loves me. He fears me. He respects me. He worships me. He brings offerings to me. I mean, he loves me, right? So what happens? Well, Satan comes along, and Satan and God have a little chat here. And um, actually, it's interesting, again, the parallel here between Job and then Jesus' wanderings. If you think of Job and Jesus representing the upright person, the holy person in these stories, and um, what happens is, is, is there, Satan takes two different approaches here, right? So in, in, this, in Jesus' wanderings, Jesus tempts, excuse me, Satan tempts Jesus to doubt that the Father loves him and cares for him. That's what's going on in our past. You can't, you can't trust the Father, right? He's not here with you. So, you, you know, he's doubting that he's trying to get Jesus to doubt, really, that the Father is in control. Um, and then here, Satan takes the opposite <laughs> Avenue and goes to God and says, you know, I don't really think that Job, I don't think he really loves you. I don't think that's what it is, because what, what does he say? Satan says, or, or so Job, or God actually kind of brags to Satan about Job, right? Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. That's like, take that, Satan. Right? He's mine. You, you don't, you got, you got, he's totally loves, right? And, and what is what does Job's or excuse me, what does Satan say? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your He's saying, no, you think he really worships you? No, at the end of the day, it's not really you that he loves. It's, it's the things that you give him. Right? It's, it's the safety. It's the protection that you give him. He has the idol of safety. Uh, I go mountain, went mountain biking with uh, J.D. And, and Al uh, yesterday, and J.D.'s trying to get me to man up, really. I'm just a wimp. I just, I'm always bailing. I'm always getting off my bike you know, at the sign of trouble. And so he always, I hear him in the trees riding along. Pastor, don't make safety an idol. Right, that's, his, that's his new line for me, right? Right, so when I come back with a broken arm, you'll know who to blame, right? Right, so, so all right, so he's got, you've put a hedge of protection around him, right? He, you've protected him. You've, you've given him all of these things. You see, that's what he really loves. That's what he really loves. You see, that, that's idolatry. When, when the blessings of God become as important or more important to us than God. And here's the problem when that happens. Here's the problem. When we let the blessings of God become more important to us than God himself, when we start turning to idol worship, here's what we run into. Your idols will fail you. Your idols will fail you. When, when that's what you're looking to, when that's what you're looking to, that's ultimately, that's going to fail you. If, if you're looking to the blessings of God, it's going to fail you. You're looking to the blessings of God instead of God himself. Ultimately, that is going to fail you. Because you see, blessings of God, the things that can become idols, they're all created things. They're all temporary things. And so at the end, they're going to fail you, and they'll fail you in one of two ways. 
They'll fail you in the sense that, well, one way they'll fail you is they'll be taken from you. Again, they're temporary, so they're not going to last forever. So that job that you have, that you love more than anything, economy goes south, you lose your job. Gone. That, that, that restaurant that you really love to eat at gets new management. Your friends and your family, they move away or they, they pass away. Someone in the church, someone in the church leadership hurts you and wrongs you. You see, anything can be an idol. Even church can be an idol. The idol of religion. You see, when, when you make these things your idol, the thing that you they're, they're, they're going to fail you, they're going to be taken from you, or they're just going to fail to deliver. They're never going to quite be good enough. Your, your career is never going to quite be good enough, right? Because you're looking for eternal joy in something that is temporary, something that is finite. So, you know, it's ne- you never quite have enough success you never quite have enough money, right? All of the different things. It's never quite enough. What you're getting from your spouse is never, is never quite enough. Just on and on and on. It's just, it's just never quite enough. So when you are in the desert, it isn't God that has failed you. It's your idols that have failed you. That's what's let you down. You, you, you lose your job, right? And, and again, because if you mistake the blessings of God for uh, the presence of God, you're not going to be able to see this. So you see, when your idols fail you, you think God has failed. Because you can't tell the difference. So you, you lose your job. And you're like, God, you have failed me. No, God hasn't failed you. Your idol of success has failed you. God, I, I, can't, you know, I can't afford the retirement that I wanted to. You know, I, I, you, you failed me. You've let me down. No, no, God hasn't failed you. God hasn't failed you. Your idol, the idol of retirement or whatever it is, that's what's failed you. Right? You... you Something goes wrong in the church, and you, you know, they've, church leadership, I hate religion. I'm done with religion. I don't even believe in God anymore. God hasn't failed you. The idol of religion has failed you. See, when you fail to see the difference between God's blessings and God's presence, then when those blessings which have become idols, when they fail, you think God has failed you. But it isn't God that has failed you. It's your idols that have failed you. And, and here's the thing. God sometimes will strip us of our idols precisely to draw us into his presence. God will strip us of our idols to draw us into his presence. And here's where we need to see, we need to take things up a notch from last week where I said that the desert follows deliverance. Yeah, the desert follows deliverance, but it's also this. 
the desert is part of the deliverance. The desert is part of the deliverance. When you first come to know God, you first profess faith in Jesus, you experience initial deliverance, but there's a lot more delivering that needs to go on. And so the desert is the means through which God brings further deliverance. It's not just that the desert follows deliverance. It's that the desert is part of the process of deliverance. You see, sometimes the best thing that can possibly happen for you is for the bottom to fall out. Sometimes that's absolutely the best thing to happen to you. Some of you will remember my friend Danny Ortley, who sang a, or did a concert here a couple of years ago. And I want to read for you some lyrics from one of his songs. But before I do, I just want to tell you something about Danny. Uh, because if, when you hear these lyrics, you could think to yourself, boy, that's really naive that you would ask that or pray for that, that, you know, be careful what you ask for, right? That's what you could think if you just read these lyrics. But you need to know that Danny is, is not naive. He's not unfamiliar with suffering. Uh, Danny, when uh, his, well, when he was young, his first wife got cancer when they were in their 20s. And then they thought they had gotten rid of the cancer and it looked like they had. But then when she was 30, she died very unexpectedly from a heart attack. And I remember, I, I had the privilege of, of being in his life more uh, at that time, and, and we were doing a lot of traveling ministry together. And so I, I watched his world unravel. So this is not a guy who's naive. This is not a guy who's unfamiliar with pain and suffering. So bear that in mind as I read to you this song. It's called Thought You Should Know, and he wrote it for his son Jack. He wrote it after all of this, okay? It started on the day you were born. I wanted you to have everything. But now it seems my conscience is torn between what I desire and what I believe. What kind of man would I be if I didn't pray for you what my father prayed for me? So I pray with all my heart that you will be broken and in brokenness, find God. I pray that God would break you as you grow. Thought you should know. You see, sometimes the best thing that can happen to you is for the bottom to fall out. Now, I want to be careful with this one here, too. I'm not offering you a comprehensive answer to the question of suffering. This whole theme, faith in the desert, certainly parallels the, the issue of suffering, but I'm not trying to just, I'm not just trying to answer that. I, I think that when we talk about an issue like suffering, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not something that you can give an answer with with a bumper sticker slogan, right? I, I think any sort of uh, biblically sound and existentially satisfying answer to the question of suffering is necessarily going to follow what Clifford Gertz, an anthropologist, would call a thick description a thick description. In other words, it, 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 there's going to be layers to an answer. It's not going to be something that you can just reduce to some simple little statement. So I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to say, well, every time there's suffering, it's because God's 
God's trying to break you. I mean, that's too simplistic, okay? So, so let's, let's realize that. I think we need to realize that is part of the answer. That's one of the strokes. If we're painting with broad, if we're painting a, a thick description, that's, that's one of the strokes. It's not the whole thing, okay? But it's something we need to consider here, is that, is that God might use your pain and your suffering precisely to draw you into his presence because when you're stripped of all of those gods and all of those idols, you have nothing else in the desert except for the Spirit. Well, that's not quite true, though, is it? Jesus in the desert, everything is stripped from him. Nothing but the Spirit and Satan. See, what you need to understand is that when, when you're in the desert and those things are stripped from you, there's a great opportunity for you to see the presence of God, but it is also a great place for you to be tempted. It's a great place for you to be tempted to replace the idols that have been stripped from you with other idols. You're in the desert and, and the idols have just been stripped from you. The things that you needed and and rested your life on, those have been stripped from you. And this is an incredible opportunity for you to turn to God. But Satan wants to tempt you. He wants you to replace that idol with something else. You see, at the end of the day, that's that's what Jesus is doing here. Excuse me, that's what Satan is doing in the second temptation. He's tempting Jesus to idolatry. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. You see what he's, he's getting at? You see, Satan works through idolatry. He's saying, I'll give you all these things. I'll give you all of these things. He's working through that idolatrous, that idolatrous draw. You know, It's not like, Satan's not like, hey, you should hang with me. I'm really cool. He's like, no, I can give you really cool things. So Satan's drawing him to that, and, and Jesus' answer, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And we know that the context here is idolatry, because if you go back, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, and, and right after that it says, you shall not follow foreign gods. So when you are in the desert, and this is, I'll just kind of, I'm going to wrap this up. In conclusion, first thing, I want to give you an encouragement, and I want to give you a warning. The encouragement is that when you are in the desert, God has not left you. Whatever you're facing, whatever your challenge is right now, and you feel so far from God, you need to realize it's not God that has left you. I mean, you you all know the footprints in the sand poem. It's been so overused that I just... I mean, it's kind of cheesy, but it's a great point, right? You know, that, that you only see, you know, you're walking in the desert, and there's the two sets of footsteps. And, and then when I was in a really hard place, I only saw one set of footsteps. And I'm like, God, where were you? Where were you when I needed you? And he says, I was carrying you. Those were my footsteps. It's cheesy. It's, it's, it's overused because it makes a great point. When you are in the desert, God has not left you. So be encouraged by that. Know that. Even though it may seem that way, it isn't God that has left you. And secondly, there's a warning. 
And that is that there is someone else in the desert who wants to draw you to replace whatever idols have fallen with something else. And so the question is simply this, what are you going to turn to in the desert? Let's pray. Dear God, We praise you for your faithfulness, that you are willing to enter into the deepest, darkest, and most painful corners of our world. You're willing to be there in the midst, even when we don't acknowledge that you're there, even when we insult you and hurt you by claiming that you're not there with us. God, I pray that you would break us of all of our idols. God, that we might come to not just worship you with our minds and say that you are our God, but with our hearts, with everything that we have. So that we can come out of the desert as did Jesus, and be used by you to help those who are truly lost. Pray this in Jesus' name.